Hi, and welcome to BOSS, a research podcast by CBS Sustainability. The name BOSS stands for the business of society, which is kind of a guiding principle for the work that we do. As the name suggests, we're interested in how business and society interrelate and what business responsibilities are towards society. In this podcast, we will share, discuss and reflect on CSR and sustainability-related issues through conversations with researchers and practitioners. My name is Sarah. I'm Center Manager at Copenhagen Business School, and I'm the host of this podcast. Featuring our colleagues, we aim to inspire you to reflect and take part in the discussion on how to transition towards more sustainable practices for organizations and government and for you and me. So welcome to this afternoon event, Leadership in Times of War, Business Resilience in the Context of Ukraine. My name is Andreas Rasha. I'm a professor here at the uh, Copenhagen Business School associated with the Center for Sustainability and the Department of Management, Society and Communication. And I'm very pleased to have Natalia Popovich with me, who setting up one philosophy group um, in Ukraine and is behind, um, of course, with many others uh, together, behind uh, the survey results that uh, you will be presenting here today. I just want to say some words of welcome to all of you. I'm sure all of you know what you've done on 24th of February, 2022. At least I know, and it was a day that sticks. It's a day that sticks until today. It has, and still has, of course, devastating consequences. And I remember that day, my, my, my son was ill, so I was, I was um, actually sleeping in my son's room, and, and I was fiddling around with my mobile phone at, at I think, 4.30 in the morning, and I saw a lot of notifications on the screen. And that usually, of course, doesn't happen because um, notifications are not sent out that easily. So I knew something something really big must have happened. And we all know what that was. And we all see it uh, in the day-to-day -day news, unfortunately. And we all know that this is nothing, you know, that is neither geographically nor culturally and cognitively very far from us. It affects us on an everyday basis. And Ukraine, I mean, what Ukrainians are fighting for is not just their freedom, it's our freedom at the end of the day. And this is something I think that we just need to make ourselves aware every once in a while. And we should not forget it. And I think this is also why we are here today with you. Because it is easy to normalize things. And it is even possible to normalize war. And this is not a normal state of affairs. Today, we want to discuss business, in particular, of course, what Ukrainian business leaders have done to adapt towards the war. Let's make it interactive, as interactive as possible. Let's maybe also discuss the other side of the coin from us here in Denmark, that it is something I'm sure that will pop up on 24th in the news. How have Danish companies behaved so far? And let's face it, all over Europe and also here in Denmark, companies are not doing enough. It's still only 
eight to nine percent, depends a little bit on the country of the companies that have retreated from Russia. And we still have some big Danish companies operating in Russia. And some companies who have promised to retreat and still didn't retreat. Carlsberg is one of them. So let's also discuss that. This is the sad truth, and we need to face it. Very warm welcome you. to you, Natalia. Thank you for being here. We look forward to discussing with you. Thank you very much, Andres. Thank you so much, Andres, for your warm welcome and for your and Sarah's work already to lead up to this ability of uh, me to share with you the findings of uh, One Philosophy's third annual um, research of uh, organizational resilience. Uh, right now, obviously, all of Ukrainian organizations are undergoing the most significant stress test uh, in modern history. And uh, I'd like to share with you the findings of um, what uh, we discovered in speaking with the leaders and founders of uh, numerous organizations that inspire us. When Andreas mentioned about 24th, I was just reflecting that um, um, exactly a year ago, on, on 20th of, um, uh, of um, uh, February, I was in the airport uh, leaving for Ukraine. And this was the first time when my son cried when I was going on a trip home. And he said, um, I'm really worried about you, uh, please come back. And I was really angry at the time, you know, already um, for our northern neighbor that my son was put in the situation where we had to, he had to worry about me not being able to come back to Denmark. Four days later, on 24th, I did wake up in my Kiev apartment already to the sounds of explosions, which you saw on your, on your phones. And of course, my road back to the safety of Denmark and to my sons was not flying because Ukraine became in one day no-fly zone, um, but very, very long road back, very long journey back, and um, of course, just you know via the land, the land route that's the only available to us. So many things have changed in the lives of Ukrainians ever since. So we've um, we started researching. Um, uh, the issue of resilience was one philosophy three years ago when the pandemic struck. And uh, we felt that Ukrainian organizations, Ukrainian entrepreneurs did not have any, you know, 100 year, year old histories of their companies and organizations to fall back on and open some sort of guidebook and say and, and read, you know, how do you behave during the times of, uh, uh, of pandemics or, or the war, simply because there was no entrepreneurship as such um, uh, in the times of, of Soviet Union and Ukraine is still a, an emerging country learning their, its, its vibes. But uh, we felt that it was important to, do to document the leadership uh, practices of Ukrainian leaders who were taking their organizations through the pandemics. So we started researching um, uh, resilience three years ago. And actually, this year, we did ask the question of whether those lessons from the pandemics help you know, uh, the Ukrainian organizations surviving even through the times of war. And um, the answer was that, yes, that, of course, a lot of the practices that companies have introduced uh, in the last couple of years, that they have been helping them to um, deal with, um, uh, to deal with uh, the war. We spoke to 30 leaders uh, of uh, different um, organizations, um, both private sector and, and state sector, and uh, they represent you know, 12, 12 industries, so pretty wide scope of, um, wide scope of, of industries. Um, I think um, in, the, in the research we broke it down um, in terms of 
um, sort of what were the, the pillars of resilience for the companies, to what extent they've managed even throughout the war to maintain uh, what they all felt was, you know, the most important uh, asset for them. And of course, uh, there would be no surprises to learn that that would be the people inside the organizations. Yeah, because I think one of the key key um, executive learnings of, of the research was that, you know, resilient organizations are made up by resilient people. Because if people cannot contain, you know, the, the, the stress, the psychological stress, the physical stress of war, just as previously it has been uh, with the pandemics, um, then it makes it, you know, very, very difficult. But um, in regards to uh, the presentation, maybe let's start from the beginning. <laughs> So on 24th, we all um, in Ukraine woke up to um, basically, you know, kind of the radio saying and, and all of the telegram channels beginning to function saying, you know, don't panic. Um, this was the first messages from the leadership, but at the same time, everyone already woke up to this, you know, sense of war. And uh, obviously, um, there were a lot of signs for the invasion with, uh, you know, how many uh, over 170,000 Russian Belarusian trip troops on our borders. Um, but still, um, no one before the war in Ukraine spoke of it as the war becoming imminent. And uh, it turned into, you know, the largest catastrophe on the European continent ever since the World War II. Uh, what has been Ukraine's reality ever since? Well, you know that Ukraine has lost millions of moms and children who decided to take their children to safety. Uh, we know of almost a million uh, of Ukrainian children that are, have been deported and, and we lost them to uh, filtration camps and Russification currently uh, being done to them in, in the Russian Federation. Uh, we've seen from the very first days something that we probably did not expect the level of brutality that I guess, you know, um, none of us thought that we would could, could still experience in a 21st century in our region. And um, obviously, Russia trying to destroy Ukraine's economy from the very start in terms of hitting Ukrainian infrastructure. How does war feel in, 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 in your home? Well, from the very beginning, it was um, the bomb shelters um, in the bigger cities where there are and, you know, larger underground systems such as metros in Kiev, they will be flooded with people. The map of bomb shelters is something that I did for my company prior to the war because we had to ask our office manager, 22-year-old, in the beginning of February to walk around Pudil region in Kiev and to look where would our employees go in case there would be an attack because I was one of the few leaders, I think, at the time who felt that we need to prepare. We do need to be, be ready for it but nobody can really be ready for war. Uh, those are some of the points of invincibility for young students right now when they, uh, during the powder outages, have to find where to plug in, be it in the shopping center or a mall or um, some business center if they're let in in case they want to maintain their uh, educational line. Somewhere there was I on this um, highway from Kiev to Lviv and then onward journey through the Ukrainian-Polish border. This was the morning of 24th when um, once you were already in that highway, there was no way for you to change any routes. And to the right of it, it was north. It was already uh, the airfields that Russia was bombing maybe two, three kilometers away from this highway. And when we were standing there, you could not tell whether they are not going to hit the highway and we'll just, you know, not ever get anywhere from for where people were trying to to get 
Lots of people used the railways, obviously, because um, evacuation from some places was only possible by railways. And you would, you know, you would see um, these stories of uh, people saying goodbye because on the very first day, not only uh, Ukraine became the flyless zone, but obviously all of the men were drafted to um, in, to to defend Ukraine, and uh, therefore could not leave. And and there, then you know, many of them would be saying goodbyes to their families. And um, uh, we saw some disheartening news. Um, not just through the images in case of my company, but we actually had a colleague who lived very close by to Irpin. Um, so we lost contact with her for 14 days. Uh, her older mother was there. She could not be evacuated by any means. So uh, she and her sister stayed and um, they were trying to help her. So we only 14, almost like 14, 12 days later, we found out that they got to safety. But this was the time when actually there were horrible things happening in Bucha and Rupin and, and other places. And um, I think we need to understand the context that the leaders in Ukraine, the executives, the founders, the top managers, they had to deal with that context of what their employees, of the, what their colleagues, of what they themselves were not just, you know, watching in news and and perceiving it as something distant, um, but actually in taking it as something that is happening, you know, um, exactly, exactly to them. Um, and then all of the nation became the nation of volunteers because um, those who had a chance, who had escaped um, to safety, they were all, of course, engaged not just in their regular professional activity, if they could still, but they, but in many different ways of volunteership, just like here, leaving the camouflage, the, the camouflage next. What does it mean to be a business during the war? So this is one of the McDonald's, one of our clients in Ukraine of one philosophy uh, that stopped operations, obviously, for the safety reasons um, on the very first days of war. These are the photos of Ukrainian fields. And as you know, Ukraine is an agricultural country. So to us, I think it was extremely painful to know that not only now Ukraine is the largest mined territory in the world, uh, was over 217 square kilometers being mined. Um, but um, it also was during the time of harvest, uh, already towards the uh, second part of the year, uh, that they, they would be setting up fires to um, the harvest. Epicenter is one of the largest building materials stores. Uh, some of the smaller entrepreneurs obviously had to face the reality that they can no longer provide the service or sell the goods. And now if you go to Ukraine, like I was there a few weeks ago, you when you walk the streets, you almost cannot hear each other because of the power generators. So as you know, there are power outages, and it's great that countries are supporting Ukraine and sending the power power generators. They are sort of like a lifeline to, you know, to be able to stay productive for kids to be able to to learn for some of the businesses to continue to function. But they create the level of noise and the level of pollution that I think Ukraine will have to deal with for still very, very long time. At the same time, you know, many of the companies that we spoke with are like Ihor Liski from um, the Effective Investments Group, uh, which is a versatile group of companies. And um, they all have tried in case you know, their factory or their greenfield plant would be destroyed, like in his case, that they would try to rebuild it as soon as possible and would do it, um, you know, would do it with utmost, utmost speed. So I think the context in which, you know, um, majority of the respondents that we spoke to uh, lived is, you know, being part of a country that is trying to resist an army that is 28 times larger than, 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 than we are. And, um, 
harvesting under the shelling because this is what Ukrainian farmers did and because we felt the responsibility for people in, in their various countries in Africa that Ukraine that depend on Ukraine. I think it's um, also being able to not just to do what your business does, but also contribute to supporting the army because um, it does depend a lot on, on the international aid, but Ukrainians have been donating from businesses and from Ukrainians themselves to the Ukrainian army and gathering um, you know, for drones and, uh, and resisting, sometimes risking their lives and saving animals and um, doing um, you know, their job, putting life in danger, like many of the first responders and the doctors, the teachers, the um, uh, people you know, from our research like um, Alexei Davidenko and Metechnica uh, trying to get medical supplies to people where they need them, whenever they need them. It's also you know, been to relocate your employees because many of the organizations had to relocate their employees and for many of them it would be starting their life from scratch in a new city. Uh, but it's also about humor. I think um, the levels of uh, humorless, uh, hum humorous memes um, uh, have been histor at historic levels um, in Ukraine. And, and I think kind of Ukrainians and, and the businesses and the founders also kind of gaining a different kind of identity maybe than they had you know, prior to, to the war um, because of um, you know, this... Um, um, attention that Ukraine has been getting, not that it wanted it, but the one that, that it gained was its um, going through the war. And also the words um, like Ukraine being able to overcome death that, that is brought by the Russian army and then hopefully it was the world being able to overcome this darkness that we are all plunged into when we think about what's happening around us. Um, and the word resilience is kind of being closer and closer tied you know, to Ukraine by the world's media, by by um, different uh, um, journalists who come and, and see um, the manifestations of that in, in the daily lives of Ukrainians. And we saw that in the manifestation of how Ukrainian companies have function. Uh, some of Ukrainian companies like Ukrainian Railways, you know, have been awarded um, some awards related to the resilience of um, their workers. So now I just wanted to briefly give you the sense of what we have found out after speaking to those, you know, 30 leaders of the organization. But first of all, I wanted to say that my own organization, One Philosophy, is a consulting group and we have tried in the last years to help our, comp our clients and partners to future-proof. And we always said that, you know, we wanted to help our partners and clients to uh, do the most in their moment of history. Um, but I have to say that I never thought that this would be the task that we would be, you know, maybe preparing um, them for. And our goals um, have always been to encourage leaders and to think more infinitely, to think more long term. Because unfortunately, again, just before the war, the planning cycle of Ukrainian entrepreneurs and organizations have been very short term. You know, it's the result of the Soviet traumas is the result of kind of living in the moment and trying to earn all your money in one day or in one year. Uh, we've worked with, with clients in our ecosystem as one philosophy to help them think outside, you know, of this short-term horizon and to plan more inf infinitely. 
and then also to build partner ecosystems to spread you know the the better examples of uh, resilience so we've created a host of of um, products or or different solutions we started the research we created like the resilient community during the pandemics where it's different um, you know, business owners and, and organizational leaders had a chance to sp speak to each other, to learn from each other's experience. We also created the Resilience Radar, the first analytical assessment tool to help organizations test the resilience, and you know, different um, kind of toolkits to 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 help um, to help that. Of course, you know, this Russia's 21st century war is putting Ukrainian organizations through the most significant stress test that they've ever, you know, could, could prepare for. And I don't, I don't think you can really, really be ready from it. So what have we found out? First of all, only one in 10 of the organizations said that they did have plans, which puts those who had at the bare, bare minimum. No one had, a, again, a book saying, this is what we will do during the war. Many of the leaders told me that, well, we always had this at the back of our deck presentation of our strategy, but it was such a fantastic scenario that nobody had any plan to back it up. So even if they would be discussing at management meetings, well, what if there is war? You know, this what if there is war? This kind of discourse was already there, but it was never backed up by how are we going to be functioning and as an organization if that actually happens, which I think puts us a little bit at the, at the perspective sometimes how we still are in this mode of not ever wanting to think about too difficult or too bad of a scenarios. 100% of owners and leaders supported their employees in the early, early days of war. Actually, I would say that they supported their employees for as long as they could, for as long as they had cash, for as long as they had the capacity to support their teams. Um, you know, vast majority attributed their resilience to the right pre-war strategy. If they had any sort of a longer-term strategy, um, those who would be found to be resilient, they were the ones who would say, this is what helped us. Because regardless of the completely different circumstances that they had to live through during the war, they still had some sort of a go-to um, point B to which they were getting. And, and this was helpful, having that bigger goal, having that, that, that bigger route uh, towards which they were trying to come back to. And I think this was in them trying, okay, if somebody has bombed out my factory, I'm going to rebuild it. Or, okay, if, if this route doesn't work, I'm going to find another, another one. So in a way, kind of swimming against the current before the war meant for many being um, ahead of the current, you know, when everyone else is flooded, when, when actually everyone kind of goes under this big wave that we all experienced. Um, some of the pre-war uh, management decisions, some of the pre-war good practices that have helped companies um, in Ukraine were building a very strong brand. So having the trust with your, with your ecosystem, with your consumers, with your, um, with your um, uh, clients, but also building trust within the company. So those who had high trust environments within the company, they fared better. The company's development strategy taking into account different, you know, different threats or different scenarios. Flexible decision-making um, and the previous experience of pandemic years, as, as I said, was still very, very relevant to that. And business transparency, which, um, uh, which they attributed to. Um, this is a quote from Taras Chmut, who is the uh, head of uh, one of the largest Ukrainian humanitarian foundations, um, Come Back Alive, um, whose um, um, 
turnover um, went through the roof, basically, with the beginning of the war. Uh, there were a lot of humanitarian organizations. There were a lot of um, people who were trying to uh, fundraise and, 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 and send you know, the, the proceeds to the right causes in Ukraine. But it's come back alive, who had this brilliant, stellar reputation of complete transparency for every single penny that you would donate to them. And therefore, when the war happened and when people did not go whom to trust because there were all of a sudden hundreds of humanitarian organizations, practically everyone went to, um, to come back alive. Of course, they're not a monopolist right now, but they have, you know, they have grown um, uh, thousands, thousands of times ever since. 100% of the Soviet companies said that decision-making flexibility really helped them sustain their organizations and that... And that flexibility meant kind of being able to go with the flow where the people or or the war or the scenario was taking you at the time. So having that adaptability muscle that we often talk about, um, how companies can nurture it, to what extent they can have it, uh, so that not everything is just according to the book, but actually the the human organization can can adapt. Um, this is what, what was what was helpful. And in terms of business results, 55% said that they're, um, ha they've had financial losses since the war began. But interestingly enough, 45% said that they, they've grown. Uh, so they found ways to still be relevant or find new markets or, or be able to, again, be ahead of the curve. And um, kind of a Summing up the top five leadership practices for resilience that we felt were probably some of the most, I don't want to say unique, but in a way this is what worked um, in essence for Ukrainian leaders. Um, there are five. Um, leading with the team. Not leading the team, but leading with the team. So again, understanding that the resilience of people in your organization makes them uh, in many ways um, chief executives. In many ways, it's in their hands what can happen with the business. And sometimes it did depend on people maybe of the lowest rank in the company, whether a company was able to open up, I don't know, a, uh, a factory on a particular day and, and restart its operations because simply no one else was there. Or go to maybe a competitor or a former partner when they have left the town and bring whatever is necessary, the supply, so you can produce what you have to produce for your, you know, for your, for your clients. I think the second important and, uh, and not necessarily um, something that, that maybe has not been fully in, in the leadership practices of Ukrainian leaders before is uh, uh, being useful to, to the society. Um, and I'll, I'll explain what that meant. Um, the third, I think, unique way during the um, time of, of war has been development of various crisis, multiple crisis centers within the company, um, and also um, the preparedness plans for all kinds of scenarios. So if, 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 if companies were not fully ready with it before the war, uh, they would do it throughout the war at different points in time. Whenever there would be that moment when they would stabilize, they would start immediately thinking, which scenarios should we be ready for? Living in reality but not giving up on big dreams was an important one because, and I think it's one of the, uh, in, in many ways uh, to me, almost like a, a definition of resilience because I think you have to be rooted on, in the ground, but I think you're resilient only if you still maintain sort of your understanding of, of purpose. And then responsibility for Ukraine and for the future was a huge motivator for everyone, every single person that we spoke with. To them, being able to understand how they contribute to Ukraine's victory or to victory in principle has been extremely important. So um, 
just to give a few more details within those uh, practices. These are sort of the um, key steps uh, that were taken by companies to support and maintain their teams. Um, first of all, that meant regardless of whether the company has still clients or was still able to sell services, it was to ensure that um, the wages were pre- you know, preserved and um, that people were treated in, in the best possible and human way. So in some companies, that would mean that everyone would get a reduction of salary and the management would get more reduction of salary than kind of a regular uh, employees maybe. Or um, maybe founders would say, we do have uh, enough remuneration for the next three months. We expect that everyone you know, delivers as much as they can, but then we were, all, we were then in the same kind of boat and we either find clients or we either stay relevant or you know, we're going to go bank- bankrupt. So there would be these very frank conversations. And, and many founders said we had to have eye-to-eye with our employees and, and see to what extent they're still with us. And if some people honestly were saying, I cannot do this, I'm not in a state of resource, you know, right now I'm focusing on completely different things, be it my family or my personal safety or other obligations, this was very, very important too, to give people space to be able to do that. Um, I think it was very precise coordination in the team's actions in the early days of war. So a lot of tools were employed to be able to stay in touch and to ensure that you know information was still traveling um, fast and, and was informing uh, everyone about what was happening. Assisting employees with relocation. Um, for example, in, in case of One Philosophy, we had rented a space in Western Ukraine before the war, whereas I thought if my team needed a place you know, either on their journey or during the evacuation, that this is something that they would use. It would be completely non-typical because in a normal year, we would not be putting additional real estate costs into your P&L in a way. But this is what you have to do in case you're preparing so that people will have a point of safety in, in you know, extreme circumstances. And when the war happened, you know, there would be lots of relocations done from places like Kharkiv or places like Nipro or places like Kherson or, or Mykolaiv or others for those companies that, that mattered. Saving jobs for the period of relocation, organizing remote work. Um, you know, some companies have also been able to offer psychological support to their employees, at least in the format of training, maybe some, you know, small money to, um, f- for them to have a chance to speak with a psychologist in case they needed it uh, throughout the first, especially six months when everyone was adjusting, and not a day without communication. Um, obviously, I think there are businesses like IT where or consulting or others where, you know, there is nothing more but people. You have people, you have business. You don't have people, you don't have business. So that was very, very straightforward. But the same actually was um, during the war. Is, is Just like pandemics is a great equalizer. So you could, you could say pre- pretty much the same about anything, about medical workers or about railroads. You know, if you don't have staff who is ready to operate a train that goes into a hot war zone, you don't have railway, right? So this was, I think, a revelation to the leaders to ensure that they show how present they are with their teams, to what extent you know they are together in this, and and how you know they can lead it. Um, I was super impressed by one of the one of the interviews, and, and especially by Alexander Commission from Ukrainian Railways, because um, he was putting these multifunctional teams in. Um, in, in Ukrainian railways to ensure that um, people would be matched 
maybe someone with much bigger experience of railroads, but maybe someone much younger with much stronger experience of communications, um, or, or 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 subject matter experts on on particular case. If something happens, like just an explosion, what to do about it? Something that that, that does not happen on on a, on a regular basis. With again someone who can. Um, I don't know, conduct negotiations with uh, other railways of other countries to whom they were transferring millions and millions of people. And, for example, Ukrainian railways, um, they've transported 4 million people, including 1 million children last year, and uh, hundreds of diplomatic delegations and tons of um, humanitarian goods. Um, another important uh, moment was the decentralization, kind of the flattening of structures of the organizations and how the teams have functioned, uh, because it was important that people could make important decisions from wherever they uh, were placed in the organization. And in cases, in, in the case, for example, of the Brobut Medical Network, that actually right now is they're opening a new fully fledged hospital in in in, in Kiev. It was important that everyone had this freedom um, to do what they understood was right for the moment, whether to conduct operations or stop operations, whether to um, how many how many beds to provide, you know, to uh, assist, you know, the military until you know the capacity of the military hospitals was was increased, and 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 so many you know so many other things, and um, not a day without communication. I think for this. Um, there was a great example that emerged all of a sudden, not that it was fully <laughs> accepted, but yeah, um, almost like two-thirds have said that they maintained close communication with the team uh, during all early days of war. We were doing um, sort of like mailers um, to the team. Someone had constantly um, following and, and actually organizing um, their own telegram channels um, to be spread to the employees, and everyone followed President Zelensky's example, example, as he was coming out like every single day in the morning saying what happened overnight and then, you know, what, what were the outcomes of the day. Many leaders found that very reassuring and have kind of not mimicked but copied that in terms of their communication with employees to tell them even when there are no news but just showing the presence that uh, the person is constantly very much 100% focused on, on the organizational goals and, and, and where organization is I think was extremely important. In terms of being useful to society, um, these are many different ways because all companies were finding their own. Uh, but I think it was extremely important that companies were giving that space to their employees to be useful in, in, in different ways in which they were, um, in, in which they, they could contribute. So um, some decided to do it directly through the means of their own business, like you know providing raw materials for all of a sudden production of military uniforms and not sports gear, for example, or donating food as humanitarian aid in case of, for example, Astarta, one of the, lead, the largest Ukrainian agricultural producers, or transporting people during evacuations without any tickets, obviously no business model for Ukrainian railroads, just, you know, saving people, or providing free medical care, even if you are a private medical provider, but how do you say no to people who come uh, from extremely, you know, extreme circumstances, uh, or launching free training courses, or doing other things or for example when there are no clients you know like in our business um the revenue dropped uh, 
at the end of the year, it's almost like 50%, but at the beginning of the year, we felt maybe it would have been 70%. But I think it was important for me to ensure that all my colleagues had a chance in the first months of war to do meaningful things. So they advocated for Ukraine. They wrote uh, communications materials. They wrote advisory. They co collaborated and helped the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So everyone was, was being helpful in, in their own professional way. Global delivery, delivery. Globo is the uh, delivery service, basically. But they added on additional services, you know, such as, um, for example, getting free medical consultations because it was super important to maintain the access of Ukrainians um, who needed um, support with health, you know, all throughout Ukraine, even when when all of that access was was um, completely um, uh, disrupted. Or uh, it's a funny example from. Uh, Rosetka, one of um, uh, the e-commerce, uh, the largest e-commerce site in Ukraine, when already the power power outages started, and um, a lady came into their store, and uh, she brought a meat grinder and and meat, which was already pre prepared for meatballs, and she said, "Can I just plug plug in and finish because I already started doing the filling for meatballs, but I cannot do it at home anymore. So can I do this?" So you can just imagine the magnitude on which. Um, uh, every business is reconsidering what is it for the society and, and, and for its shareholders or owners. I think the critical uh, revelation, maybe, or finding or practice for Ukrainian business leaders was the necessity to develop crisis centers and preparedness for multiple scenarios. I think in terms of um, preparedness, some companies have been more um, like acting based on foresight than others. The example of Dmitry Rouha from Skyup Airlines, who back in January 2022 was one of these very, very few companies who had the preparedness plans, and they decided that they're not going to be grounding their planes in Ukraine already in January. So their planes would only deliver and go back and would be settled outside of Ukraine. But this actually has helped them to preserve their fleet and now to be able to sustain their business model and then to uh, be able to participate in evacuation, humanitarian flights and uh, have their aircrafts in what leasing in other, with other airlines and actually, you know, operate in the EU while if that fleet had stayed in the airports, most likely it could be, you know, they, they would, have, would have lost it. Um, companies finding their own ways of how not to only depend on the Ukrainian market. So obviously the registration of business abroad, doing more with the EU or, or, or the globe, making sure that their services and products are uh, entering other markets. Um, that is also obviously one of the ways. Um, Oleksii Davidenko had said that we need to look at completely new niches. So his business, for example, is selling medical devices to uh, Ukrainian customers. And he said, the profile of my customer has not changed. It's still the same people. It's just that they used to be buying medical devices for themselves or for their relatives, maybe. And now Ukrainians come into my store to buy these medical devices for completely, um, for like completely, complete strangers, because I can come and buy something for a soldier that I don't know. But somebody on Facebook wrote that that soldier needs that particular medical device. So, um, as people turn more into volunteership, as they invest more into purchasing things, even just for the people they don't, they don't know, that continues. But also new niches, for example, in the prosthetics 
and, and, and among technicians, Ukraine does not simply does not have enough prosthetic technicians that we will need in the years to come, given the heavy casualties that Ukraine is, um, is suffering right now. And also being adaptable to different scenarios. So like Alexander Sokolovsky from Textile um, uh, Contact, um, which is basically um, a very large enterprise doing lots of um, uh, sewing and, and preparing all kinds of uniforms and, um, and, and different things. But they're, again, like looking into... Uh, how they can innovate and and turn um, raw materials into more um, you know yarn and fabrics and ready-made uh, products. So this is all happening all throughout the war. And I think also having those multiple teams was important because um, war brings this um, acceptance that you can die any any time and and your team can disappear any time. So people were almost like, very, very sure that we, they need to have one leadership team and then kind of a plan B leadership team or one production team and then plan B production team. And that's a very different type of thinking than, than the usual kind of ways in which they would be. Living in reality but not giving up on, on big dreams. I think most survey leaders told us that they decided they're, you know, they're living today. So they're not postponing what they have planned um, before. And... Um, Roman Romanchuk from Multiplex, as you can imagine, going to cinemas during the war probably was not that much on the agenda, especially in the first um, few months. But unfortunately, as there are times when war normalizes itself, and sometimes when you will read, you know, even Danish media, they will say, well, we've been to Kiev and life is almost as usual or almost as, as you know, as, as possible as in other places, if not for air sirens. So um, people decided that, you know, the people still need culture. People need to innovate. People need to gather. They need to socialize. So all of a sudden there is somewhat limited, somewhat different, but space for all kinds of maybe businesses that have been before. Um, and then, you know, like communications, um, telecommunications providers, obviously they had this hard job of ensuring that for free um, and immediately Ukrainians have access to communications, especially in newly liberated territories where it's the battle for people's minds and 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 for sanity, I would say. Uh, so this is also extremely important. Um, everyone said that you know all throughout this experience, their biggest sources of strengths were their families, their teams, seeing meaning in everyday work. That they what they do today in Ukraine, staying in Ukraine is extremely meaningful. Something that they will always treasure and remember. Uh, and also face in victory and face in Ukraine's future and development. That, that whatever they do every single day does contribute to civilization winning over. So it's, it's sort of uh, seeing bigger meaning than, than I think um, under normal circumstances uh, people would, would see. And the final point, I think it's this about growing responsibility for Ukraine and for the world. And I think we saw and, and felt it all throughout the interviews was Nibulon um, in how um, they, as, as, as this is the company that is key in Ukraine for the Ukraine's agricultural center and for agri-trade. So basically for the opportunity for others in the world to benefit from 
from Ukraine's, you know, um, grain uh, uh, deliveries, um, how they saw themselves even when banks started, uh, banks stopped crediting when when circumstances were extremely hard, but they just felt that they're sort of they're the essential business; they cannot behave otherwise, right? And and um, they feel how they need to expand, you know, that set of roles. Or Dmitro Serohov's kind of summing it up that businesses right now feel that, okay, Ukrainian army is doing it on the actual front and what they're doing in their jobs, trying to provide jobs, pay taxes that also go to the army, support the employees in the state of meaningful work and sanity and productivity, that this is basically their role in, in, in you know, supporting Ukraine's victory and uh, uh, doing what they, what they can. And I think that kind of correlates with the fact that overall, Almost 90% of Ukrainians are optimistic about Ukraine's future, regardless of you know of all of the headlines that that uh, you you see. So these are the top leadership practices for resilience that we saw this year. We sincerely hope that we'll be here next year. That all of the leaders that we've spoken to will be there next year. That we'll be able to check in with them and see how they are, and hopefully we'll see other examples of resilience even under the most extreme of circumstances. And um, I think coming back to Andres's point, um, it is very sad that on 24th it will be one anniversary uh, of um, this full-scale invasion. It's nine, ninth year of war, but it's um, going to be the first anniversary of um, the full-scale invasion. But it does not, we don't have to have the second one. Uh, and whether we have the second one really depends on not, not only what Ukrainian businesses do, but even more so on what Danish and, and German and French and the UK and, and US businesses do. Because until Russian economy does not feel that this war is a mistake, um, those atrocities will continue to happen. So I sincerely hope that more will happen also from the other side, but it, because it feels that you know, after speaking with these uh, leaders, I personally am very, very inspired. I think they're doing their best, not just for themselves, not only for their own companies, their visions, you know, fulfilling their dreams as entrepreneurs or as leaders of organizations, but, you know, they're, they're doing really good for the world. So I hope that everyone else will do too. Thank you for listening to this episode of BOSS. Are you interested in learning more about our work? Then check out our website or follow our BOSS blog. The music featured in this podcast is by Crowwinder.